it's great to be with all of you again. It's kind of a, <laughs> I forget what the title of this weekend was, was supposed to be. Uh, but I always think it's better to create the title after the weekend than before. So we see what it is. Basically, over the next two days, I'd like to talk about uh, different aspects of the nature of mind. And it'll become clearer as we go through exactly what I mean by that. There's really a tremendous, great vastness of vision that flowed from the Buddha's enlightenment. And when you read the description of cosmological understanding. Uh, in some way, it resonates with our understanding of present-day cosmology of, I don't know how many, hundreds of billions of stars and hundreds of billions of galaxies. You know, it's unbelievable, you know, the extent you know, of space and time and creation. And the Buddha took it even further because he could see through the power of his enlightenment uh, not only the external world, but also the world of the mind, the world of inside, different planes of existence, you know, different world systems. So it's a vast, it's a vast vision of reality. For most of us, we don't, I think, generally go on this space travel through the realms. You know, we might read of the different realms of existence and past lives and future lives and, you know, that, that kind of uh, vastness. But for most of us, it's outside of the realm of our direct experience. So we might be inspired by it or awed by it, uh, but we might not have seen it for ourselves. There's another kind of vastness which we can touch for ourselves. And it's really the more essential one. And that is the understanding that happens when we look into our own minds, into the nature of consciousness. Because as immense as the world is, the universe is externally, it's as immense internally. And even those words begin to lose, internal and external, begin to lose meaning at a certain point. And so I'd like to begin with just a bit of an examination or investigation of what we mean by looking within at the nature of consciousness. What is consciousness? You know, it's, it's a word that is of such profound significance for understanding who we are as human beings. That's a tremendous mystery. I was staying with a friend. Uh, I came to LA uh, last Monday. I was staying with a friend who's studying for a PhD in neuroscience. And I had these huge books of impenetrable material to my... I couldn't understand a single sentence of what was in these books. It was just amazing. And kind of the, 
the investigation, you know, in that way is so astounding, what's being learned. And I was so grateful that there was, in some way, a much simpler method <laughs> of understanding the nature of consciousness and the nature of mind, because if it depended on that, for me, it would be hopeless. So what is consciousness in the way we experience it, not theoretically? Consciousness is defined within the Buddhist tradition as the knowing faculty, the cognizing faculty. It's that which knows. And by knowing here, we mean something very specific. It's not knowing in the sense of acquired knowledge. So it's not like learning something or knowing something uh, through knowledge, but rather it's the immediate direct awareness of the object itself. So for example, we sit and sound arises. We know a sound before any thought about it before we think bird or ocean or wind, let's now take a moment and just just the bare knowing that arises in the very moment that the sound appears. It's that knowing that is free of any mental construct. That's what's meant by consciousness. So, for example, we could sit and, in a more, a more ordinary mode, we would sit and we would hear the ocean. And somebody asks you, what, you, what you're hearing? What you know? Oh, I hear, I hear the ocean. But we don't hear ocean. That's, that's a kind of sloppy way of describing our experience. What's happening is, that we're hearing a sound, there's the moment of knowing the sound, and then we think, we put a label, we put a concept, ocean, and so actually ocean is a thought. That's not what we're hearing. And it becomes very important in the investigation of who we are to begin to understand that difference. The bare knowing of what's happening, and then the thoughts we have about it. But for most of us, in our lives, and certainly for people who don't have a meditative or mindfulness practice of one kind or another, these two realms get very confused. And we start living in the world of concept, thinking that it's the concept that we're experiencing, rather than what's actually being known in the moment. This will have tremendous consequences, which we'll get into later. So it's not an unimportant distinction. Okay, so there are moments of consciousness, knowing a sound, a sight, a smell, a taste, a sensation, knowing a thought, or a mental phenomenon, emotion, an image. These moments of consciousness sometimes are, not sometimes, often, are clouded by delusion, by the mental quality of delusion. And delusion is characterized, these moments of delusion are characterized by the mind, the consciousness becoming fixated or attached or identified with the experience. So it's a contraction of mind, 
taking the experience to be I, to be self, to be mine. And we call this delusion of mind ignorance. Because in that moment of ignorance, there's not the simple, clear seeing or experiencing of the moment. Something is being added to it. And what's being added is the clinging or the attachment or the identification, whatever word you like, fixation, identification. And so it's as if the mind does that in a moment of delusion. So we call this delusion of mind ignorance because we're not seeing clearly in that moment. But sometimes there are moments free of delusion, free of ignorance, where the mind is not clinging, not attached, not identified, where it's really resting or abiding in that open awareness. So in these moments that are free of delusion, free of ignorance, I use the term awareness for those moments. And I say this specifically because sometimes there's a lot of confusion about how we use different words. Well, what's awareness and mindfulness and consciousness and knowing? You know, how does, what do they all mean? So I'm staking out a claim in a definition, right? And that's how I'll be using it for this time. When you hear it used in other contexts, it would be good to ask what is meant by it, because other people may use these same words differently. Okay, so it's just clear this consciousness, which is the simple knowing of the object. It's the simple knowing, sound, sight, smell, taste. Sometimes consciousness is clouded by delusion. And in those moments there's fixation, there's attachment, there's clinging. We call this ignorance. Sometimes these moments are not clouded by delusion, where there's no clinging, no attachment, no identification. And I'm calling this mind awareness, this wisdom mind awareness. Most of us, are extremely familiar with the mind of delusion. We live in it a lot. You know, when we're lost in thoughts, it's delusion. We're lost in thought. We don't, we don't know that we're thinking, and there's the identification with the thought. We're lost in wanting or judging or different emotions. We're caught up by fear or anger or happiness or sadness. But when we're caught up in the experience, identified in some way, that's all the mind of delusion. It's almost like every arising experience, this is, take this, take this image loosely, <laughs> but it's like every, every arising experience, sound, sight, emotion, thought, whatever it is, is arising with a hook on it. When delusion is present, we bite. Oh, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. It's like, or you could think of it as a Velcro mind. You know, it's just <laughs> where the mind sticks to the object. The Buddha used many different terms to describe the mind caught in delusion, 
to describe these states, he talked of the hindrances, which you're probably very familiar with. He talked of the floods, <coughs> where the mind is swept away by a flood of attachment or craving. He talked of taints, the mind being tainted by different defilements. He talked of bonds, he talked of fetters. It's just descriptions, all different descriptions for the mind caught in delusion in one way or another, <coughs> that Velcro mind. It's very helpful, I think, to notice carefully your experience when the mind is caught in delusion, is caught in one of these defilements or hindrances or fetters. Because we begin to see for ourselves experientially, not theoretically, it's not philosophy anymore. It is actually our experience that when the mind is caught in delusion in these ways, there's a feeling of contraction. There's a feeling of tightness. There's a feeling of being bound. We really begin to understand that the mind of delusion in all of these ways is suffering. And in order to actually motivate ourselves to make the effort to be free, we need to realize the suffering that we experience when the mind is contracted. You know, but more commonly, and this is one of the powers of delusion, people, all of us, you know, just go around in our lives not really paying attention to what it's like when the mind is in that state. And so we're kind of in this blissful ignorance. But it's not really blissful, because there is a tightness. The Buddha used some very apt metaphors for the mind caught in the hindrances. I want to read them to you, because he really is he's pointing out very directly something that I think we need to pay attention to. He said, when the mind is lost in the hindrances, and hindrances here is just the word used for any state of delusion. It's like a person being in debt, having a disease, being in a prison house, slavery, or on a road across a desert. Now just take, take a moment and, and really imagine each one of those images and what it would be like to be burdened by huge debt, where that is the burden you're carrying, or to have some really strong uh, disease in the body, or to be in prison. I mean, just, just feel what it would be like in those states, or to be in a state of slavery or to be on this endless road across a desert. Not pleasant conditions. Right? They're conditions of suffering. And then he said, when the hindrances are abandoned, it's like being free of debt, 
free of disease, free of prison, free of slavery, free of a road across a desert. And so just imagine the relief in each one of those situations of being out of that situation. And there's just that sense of the heart opening and relaxing and huge relief. I think what's so important is that we really pay attention to the quality of our experience in times of delusion and in times of awareness. Because when we do pay attention in that way, we will experience for ourselves the suffering of the contraction and the relief of the letting go. And that becomes a a huge motivation for us on this path of liberation, of freedom. But it takes paying attention, because if we don't pay attention, we're not going to notice it. You know, we just stay distracted in our lives, going along. Now, there's good news and bad news about all this. The bad news is that delusion is incredibly strong as a habit of mind. And anybody who's meditated at all will know this, of just how often our minds are caught up or lost. You know, can be lost simply in thought or it can be lost in reaction or judgment or some emotion. A good part of our lives is lived in delusion. So that's the bad news. It's a strong habit. The good news, which is really good news, is that delusion is not intrinsic to the mind. Delusion is a visitor. It's a strongly conditioned habit, but it is not inherent to consciousness itself. It is not intrinsic. So that means, given that it's not intrinsic, in any moment we have the potential, we have the possibility of coming out of the delusion into the aware, the wisdom aware nature of mind. Because the delusion is just visiting. Does this seem clear so far? It's very helpful, in addition to recognizing the suffering or the contraction of those moments of delusion, it's also really helpful to recognize the relief, the freedom, the openness of those moments that the mind is free of delusion, where we really are simply resting in awareness. And not to... not to miss our recognition, not to miss the recognition of those moments, because when we get a taste of the mind that's free of ignorance, free of delusion, just a moment of hearing, of seeing, aware of a thought, aware of an emotion, that reinforces our understanding of the 
aware, open nature of the mind. And it becomes tremendously inspiring. Yes, I can touch this. I can be with this. This is possible. The more clearly we recognize it, the easier it is to access it. So just as a simple example of a practice you can do, which will highlight the difference between delusion and awareness, between ignorance and awareness, in terms of recognizing the experience of each. And this experiment you have, we all have endless opportunities to practice this. And that is making a practice of noticing that moment of transition when we go from having been lost in a thought to being aware that we're thinking. Oh, we get we get carried away, we get lost in our thoughts a lot. But if we're paying attention, lost, 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 and then at a certain moment, it's like we wake up. Instead of hurrying right back to the breath, or instead of judging the fact that you know, we were lost, which is simply getting lost again, it's much more helpful, I think, to take that moment of awakening from being lost in the thought and highlight that moment. Okay, what's the difference there? Really, really investigate okay, what was the experience of being lost and then the experience of coming out of that dream, of waking up from it. So right there, it's a very powerful moment. And we begin to get a sense, experientially, of the mind contracted and the mind open. The mind in delusion, the mind in awareness. As I say, we have, in one sitting, probably have 10,000 opportunities to watch this. The, the key is not glossing over that moment, which we mostly do. And, and right there, it's, it's really a, a very good point of investigation. Okay, the more clearly and the more, o- the more often, frequently, we recognize the nature of awareness, we recognize these moments free of delusion. So I say the, the clearer we understand it, the clearer and easier we can come back to it. There's one great Tibetan master who wrote beautifully about the nature of mind, this nature of awareness, the nature of the wisdom mind. And his name was Shabkar. He lived uh, 1781 to 1851. So that was his historical period of time. Uh, you spell his name S. H-A-B-K-A-R. And he was one of the great Dzogchen masters. And his writings are really beautiful descriptions of the wisdom mind, of the nature of mind. 
And one of the uh, kind of teachings he used to describe it, um, he said, and I think those of you may remember this from last time, the mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal. Okay, so just imagine for a moment a flawless piece of crystal. The mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. Okay, intrinsic, this is the description of the wisdom mind. Intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. And so for this couple of days, what I'd like to do is to elaborate on that verse. What it means to say intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. Intrinsically empty. What does that mean? For a lot of people, especially in the West, it doesn't sound all that appealing. You know, emptiness as a word in English, <laughs> why would anybody want to spend their lives you know, discovering emptiness? Because in English it has this whole connotation of nothingness or vacuity or blankness or grayness or, you know we feel empty is not a good state you know somehow unfulfilled clearly Shapkar is not talking about all that so what's meant you know in both his and also the general Buddhist understanding what emptiness means and this is really a key understanding and I don't know whether you know in different you spent much time exploring the nature the meaning of emptiness but it's really a key key element of the teachings go through different understandings of what emptiness means because it is so critical I think in the in the simplest way of understanding it we could say emptiness is the absence of self-centeredness. But even that takes a little elaboration because we usually think of self-centeredness as a personality problem. You know, somebody's really self-centered and you would really go into therapy and address that. You know, and that's, that's generally how we relate to that notion of self-centeredness. But there's a more fundamental meaning. And that is, are we creating or are we holding a sense of self to be at the center of who we are? Self-centered. Is there a self at the center of it all? That's 
much more profound than a personality issue. This is really a question of our basic understanding of ourselves, of the nature of our minds. Have we created or do we hold a sense of self to be at the center of our lives, a kind of reference point for everything that we see and hear and think and feel? Is everything coming back to this self-center? An idea or even a felt sense that there's someone, there's an I, to whom everything is happening. That's what self-centered means on this level, where we create this reference point of I, reference point of self. And this is common. This, this is how most of us live. You know, we relate to phenomena from this reference point. My thoughts, my feelings, my body, my life, my relationships. You know, just the self gets very big and it really dominates our fundamental understanding of how we are living and how we operate and how we relate in the world. So this is this is a very key key issue. Most of us live our lives in the gravitational field of this self-center. You know, and our lives revolve around our hopes and our fears and our desires and our wants, and we keep circling around. Our desires for continuously new experiences. Now, how much of our lives is just that wanting for the next, the next thing, whatever it is, you know, the next feeling, the next vacation, the next relationship, the next meal, the next breath. It's as if we just keep revolving around this gravitational field of self. Even when we know that things keep changing, we know that there's no fulfillment in whatever it is we want because we've had our wants fulfilled <coughs> as many times as there are stars in the galaxy. <laughs> we've had so many wants fulfilled, but they're not fulfilling precisely because everything keeps changing. And so as long as we revolve around this gravitational field of self, that's samsara. We just keep circling and circling and circling, and there is no end to it. Another experiment. You, you might just keep a, a sidebar of... Uh, uh, practices, you know, so you can remember them easily. First one was really watching, you know, being lost in the thought, coming out of thought, and not glossing that moment, but just really seeing the difference in your experience. 
second second uh, practice that you can really do. In the course of a day, this day, any day, really watch for all those times, all those moments of the mind caught in anticipation of the next want. You know, and it can be little things, it can be big things, but when we're caught up or identified or lost in that feeling of anticipation of wanting. I had a very mundane experience of this, but it was so it was so striking. Just the contrast of being lost in anticipation and then relaxing back. Uh, I was, this was last year, and I was visiting my mother up uh, in Palo Alto. And you may know, you know, there's this big Stanford shopping center, and it's, it's really pleasant. They really have designed it well to feed, to feed the wanting mind. <laughs> so I was there in the shopping center, and I had these things, you know, that I had wanted to get. I was just watching myself move around in the shopping center. And I'd take a few steps and I'd really just be mindful of myself walking and just Now all of a sudden my mind would get totally caught in the anticipation of where I was going and what I was gonna get. And I could just feel this I could feel in retrospect, because in the moment of getting lost I was lost. But in retrospect, just noticing it's like all of a sudden the energy contracted into into that. You know, it's, it's like I was being pulled along by the force of that anticipation and that wonder. And then after however long, you know, what's what's that? You know, I'd become aware of it. I'd relax. Oh yeah, just a step. And you'd think, and this is really what is so completely astounding. Feeling that and feeling the suffering, the tightness of that being lost and the ease of settling back. Why not opt for the ease? <laughs> you know, it's so much nicer. And it's astounding how strong the habit is. You know, even having noticed that, of course, not only in that situation, but many, many times in life and in practice, Still, how often we get caught again and again. It points to the force of the habit you know, of wanting, of anticipation. And it all comes from this self-center. Right? When, we're, when we're identified, when we're caught in that. The great gift of practice, the great gift of mindfulness, of meditation, is that through some sustained attention, through some sustained practice of awareness, of mindfulness, we begin to leave this familiar, this very familiar orbit around the self-center. It's like through sustained mindfulness we get enough uh, I'll probably mangle this image, but <laughs> I don't know. Get enough booster thrust 
to leave the gravitational field of self, you know, shh, we come out of that gravitation and we begin to revolve around the gravitational field of the zero center rather than the self center. And by zero center I mean that wisdom mind of awareness. So we're not being driven or not caught by the gravity of the self-center. But actually we begin, and as our practice deepens, and we go have clearer and clearer recognition of the wisdom mind of awareness. It's like we spend more time in the field of the zero center rather than the self-center, the I-center. And this this was expressed really uh, well by Rumi, you know, the Sufi mystic and poet, when he said, live in the nowhere that you come from, even though you have an address here. So it doesn't mean leaving our life in the world. We have an address here, but it's living in the nowhere that we come from. So we get glimpses of the zero center in different ways. And of course this is this is the I think in some way the heart of our practice. How can we open to this empty, open, selfless nature of awareness, nature of mind? And I see the Buddhist teachings as just a vast array of skillful means, you know, all the different traditions and methods. The different skillful means for helping us recognize this zero center. Sometimes we intuit it when we're in the presence of really realized beings. And when we're in the presence of beings who are very empty of self, something happens. You know, it's like we just get a glimpse of a possibility of a way to be, and it's tremendously inspiring. Because when we see the possibility, or we see somebody else manifesting that, we see that this is, this is possible for us as well. And this is, it's really a great blessing because it's not the message we mostly get, you know, in our culture and from the people uh, that are held up as models. <laughs> you know, most are not manifesting great emptiness. And so to be in the presence of people like that is a tremendous... And of course, 
one of our favorite <laughs> examples, you know, who is so wonderful, is the Dalai Lama, who just so beautifully and consistently, in, in such a completely integrated way, you know, manifests this. Some of you probably know this story, of, but maybe some don't. Uh, Sharon and I were at the uh, Buddhist Christian conference at uh, Gethsemane Abbey, you know, where uh, Thomas Merton lived. And it was a big conference, and a lot of church bigwigs, and you know, the Dalai Lama and his entourage, and so it was, you know, those kind of <laughs> those kind of people. And the, the monks of the abbey took the Dalai Lama around on tour, you know, of the uh, of the abbey. And what they did to uh, for livelihood, you know, at the abbey is they they make uh, cheese and and uh, fruitcake. So they would make them and sell them, and that that would support the abbey. And so they go all around. And the monks, the Trappist monks, are showing the Dalai Lama, you know, these various things. And then that night, in the talk that the Dalai Lama gave, the opening talk. He thanked the monks for having shown him around. And he said, you know, they kept offering me cheese and I really wanted fruitcake. <laughs> and, and he would burst out laughing. Yeah, and he said it again and again. I just wanted the fruitcake, but they kept giving me the cheese. And it was such a model of sort of a childlike innocence combined with wisdom. You know, it was, it was just <laughs> sort of reflecting back what he was feeling at the time. But it was not, it was just this great humor and great ease and great sense of selflessness, of emptiness in that. And it was, it was really beautiful. And of course, there are lots of stories with him. Uh, and other, you know, really beings who have deeply integrated the understanding of emptiness. Emptiness of self, lack of self-center. They manifest a tremendous joy and lightness in the world. So that's one way that we begin to glimpse it in ourselves. We're in the presence of people like that. And we just start to intuit it. Yeah, this, this is possible. Sometimes we're reminded more directly by our teachers, you know, where our teachers are really pointing this out to us. I'll just tell you two stories of kind of these direct reminders. One story is from, I don't know, maybe 20, 25 years ago, of a woman from Canada who had been practicing in India a long time with Kala Rinpoche, uh, who was one of the great great Tibetan teachers. Um, and then she went back to Canada, and I think she was living in Saskatchewan or Alberta, someplace you know, in the provinces where there was no Dharma activity at all at that time. So she felt very isolated. So she wrote this card to Kala Rinpoche saying, the only thing that keeps my practice going is holding you in my heart. Um, so she sent this card off. Some weeks later, she gets a card back with one line. The nature of the heart is emptiness. <laughs> and then, 
sign, color image. <laughs> but then a few days or a week later, she gets another another little note, sort of the the uh, elaboration of that, where he wrote, "When you practice the holy dharma, slowly the clouds of sorrow will drift away, and the sunlight of wisdom and great joy." will be shining in the clear sky of your mind. And that story to me just, I think it contains some really important points that the real essence of emptiness is not clinging to anything. The only thing that sustains me is holding you in my heart. And this is in a tradition of great guru devotion. You know, and using guru devotion as a very as a skillful means, and so it's not it's an important path. This is the end of side one. Please turn the tape over at this point to play side two. And even with that, to understand that the real guru is the empty nature of the mind. The guru is not the person outside. You know, and so with a great master like Halu, it just takes it to another level. You know, the only thing that sustains me is holding you in my heart. The nature of the heart is emptiness. So there's not an attachment, a fixation on something outside. Cutting the attachment, coming back, to the true guru. And then, elaborating, when we're in that place of zero center, this understanding of emptiness, the elaboration, really, of the great joy of that. You know, we cut the attachment. Slowly the clouds of sorrow will drift away, and the sun of wisdom and great joy will be shining in the clear sky of your mind. So it just brings it full circle to the fullness you know, of this understanding. You know, sometimes teachers are pointing it out. The second story I wanted to mention in terms of uh, being reminded directly, some years ago, uh, Sharon and myself and some others were on a retreat with Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche, who is also one of the great uh, the great Dzogchen masters of this last century, and very, kind of a real crazy wisdom kind of guy. Uh, so we were on retreat in New Mexico with him. And part of the Dzogchen teachings, which are not taught very often, but it's, it's part of uh, the bigger picture of it, is this whole visionary side. And one side is the recognition of the nature of awareness, but then there's another whole side where they you know, when people are stabilized in that recognition of awareness, as it's taught, all kinds of different visions come. And I don't know there's a whole teaching about distinguishing between pure perception and impure perception. It gets it gets very deep and elaborate. And so we had no. I mean, most of us practicing with them had no experience of that. But of course, it's very tantalizing. You know, oh yeah, visions. <laughs> so we we had just gotten, you know, just 
really the very beginning teaching of the fact that it's just possible. So we're all sitting there, you know, in Dzogchen, it's eyes open. So we're... <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. Where's the vision? You know, and interpreting every little uh, change of sunlight. <laughs> so we, we would be practicing, uh, a lot of us, with that, you know, with that idea. And we'd sort of be reporting our feeble attempts to Kempo. And then in the, in the talk that evening, he came and he was kind of making fun of us and he was imitating us. You know, and he said, in the teachings of the great Long Chengpa, who was, you know, in that school, one of the very great masters, you know, in his teaching of the great perfection, he was not teaching sitting, <laughs> looking, hoping. And it was, it was just another reminder, you know, of just the same thing Kalu did with that woman, that it's not about wanting and it's not about grasping for anything, even when it's spiritual things, you know, holding the guru in the heart or, you know, seeking for these visions. That is delusion. That's ignorance. That's the self-center. And so teachers can really help point out to us and help us cut through those attachments. Uh, And it's essential. It's an essential gift uh, to us. And of course, The last way of realizing the zero center and living from that place is through our own meditative understanding, meditative practices. And I'll go into that a little more uh, later, but maybe this would be a good time to just open things for discussion or questions or comments, um, if you have any. Well, it would be, for example, in the example, I, or one of the, the suggestions I made about paying attention to that moment when you come out from being lost in a thought, it's just taking a moment, and I'll use words a little loosely here, but just as a way of honing in on, on the experience. Okay, we're lost in a thought, and then it's like we wake up from it. To take a moment to, you could say, reflect or remember, okay, what was it just like being lost? No, actually, before doing that. (laughs) Okay, we're lost and then we we wake up from being lost. Notice the feeling of having awakened from being lost. So we notice that sense of relief. And then in the next moment, you take a moment or two just to think back to what it was like being lost. 
So this, you have that sense of contrast between the two. So there is a little kind of doing there and a little reflection. When you do that, you know, for some time, then that awareness of the difference happens immediately. But as a practice to start with, it takes a little, it's like you take a little time there. Do you follow? Yeah. Um, the image which I've used a lot in different you know, in different talks is it's very much like the feeling of coming out of movies when you've been really absorbed in the story. You know, we go to the movies, we get really caught up in it, and then the movie's over and you step outside. You know that moment, it's like that reality shift where all of a sudden, yeah, you know, our minds was, had been so caught in the movie, and then all of a sudden, oh, the reality is bigger. That's what it feels like in the moment of coming out of being lost in a thought. And when you see it in that way, We are, I don't know if I want to say mostly, but <laughs> close to mostly, lost in the movies of our minds. Now, that's how we live our lives. And so to highlight those moments of stepping out of the movie theater is a reinforcement for that quality of wakefulness. Uh, and we can do it in our sitting practice, we do it in the shopping center, you know, where, wherever it's happening. Just to follow that train of thought, and I like the word highlighting, but also when you step out of the movie, it's really the reality is colored, so that the reality that you walk in is different, mm -hmm. because it's part of right. colored by that, and then, aha, uh -huh, they can both change, but you can capture that space where the reality of stepping out <coughs> is still colored by the inside. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... And then mm -hmm. stepping back. Yeah. All of that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think there are two processes going on. One is, one is the reality that we're aware of, whether it's whether it's the reality on the movie screen, the reality outside being colored by what we saw, and then maybe not colored, so there's all of that, right. and then there's the experience of the awareness of each of those. Right? Uh, usually when we're in the movie, there's very little awareness. Although there can be moments, I don't know whether you sit in the movie sometimes, and. Well, it happens more often in a bad movie, <laughs> <You know? laughs> where where you just you, we remember, yeah, this is just a movie. Uh, but it's really <coughs> the, that interesting transition, you know, as we step outside. Mm. Uh, Noticing it all, and I suppose yeah. that space before you say one takes a moment, it's like, oh yes, this yeah 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 I just feel it's very helpful to 
consciously take note of wakefulness. Because the more we consciously take note of it, recognize it, as I said, the easier it is to remember and to access it. Because it's always, it's always available. Because delusion and ignorance is not intrinsic to the mind. So in any moment, we can awaken from delusion. The more often we do it, uh, we get in that habit. to realize and grow to trust that one actually can function perfectly well in the complexity of the world from a non-grasping place. So even though in that moment you were experiencing it as not knowing, it doesn't mean that one stays in that dysfunctional place (laughs) because it has to do not not with the knowing of where one is or essentially but whether one is lost in the attachment or fixation to it do you follow yeah yeah Uh, uh, for me just as you said non-functional i realized happens a lot in meditation. I mean, it's, it's really when, mm-hmm. as I referred earlier to the difference between our concepts about experience and the direct experience itself. Just as another example of what you said, there, there were times in my practice where the conceptual world had so disappeared and I was in my meditation, I didn't know whether I was sitting or standing. You know, it's that concept of the form of the body had just completely disappeared. And there was a different level of experience. Yeah, so it is good to, to learn to trust that. Yeah. Uh, I think this uh, movie experience of 
of course, uh, from the other side, because there's a sense I have in which the better I get at practice, the more I really release. For myself, I mean, there's a pleasantness in reverie, uh, and it really goes sort of deeply to the motivation for practice, um, in which, to the extent that as sort of go along, it gets harder and harder to get completely lost in a movie or in other pleasant experiences of my life. Um, and we're kind of asked on the path to do that, to let go of all of the, um, the, the, the pleasant aspects. And as you said, initially, the, the um, Pleasant aspects of the a kind of blissful ignorance. You know, we don't know that we're suffering um, until we look and then we realize we're suffering. And so there's a question, is it quite ready to yeah, uh, yeah. I think it's, <laughs> that's a common concern, you know. Um, I think it's really, it's a uh, question of, the reason I'm hesitating is um, this answer can go into to a whole other long elaboration, but just to, in a way your question is revolving about the issue of giving up a lesser pleasure or lesser happiness for a greater happiness. But till you've tasted the greater happiness, there's a reluctance to give up the happiness of what's familiar. From the perspective of the greater happiness, the lesser happiness starts to look like suffering. And this, there's some teaching that where the Buddha said, what the world calls suffering, I call happiness. What the world calls happiness, I call suffering. Because just think of what the world would think of the Buddha living off, you know, the set of robes in the forest, or quite austere, certainly by our standards. So from the worldly point of view, that doesn't look very appealing. <laughs> from his point of view, the happiness that he experienced and others like that was so so immeasurably superior to the happiness of the worldly life. So from his perspective, what the world calls happiness, he calls suffering. And so I think that for us it's It's basically to honor the glimpses we have of that, you know, so that we don't stay totally caught in our attachment to our current level of satisfaction or happiness or fulfillment, because they are there. You know, the Buddha talked about the happiness of sense pleasures, that they give a kind of happiness, but then he went on to talk about six higher kinds of happiness. Uh, and we all, I mean, all of us 
have had some understanding of that or wouldn't be here. And so that that seed of understanding that is clearly present in all of us. So I think understanding it in that way helps helps us moving in the direction. And the Buddha talked of seven kinds of happiness. You know, he just We should we should have little uh, wake meters. <laughs> you know, we could. It's hard for me to compare uh, my state of wakefulness to yours, since I don't know. It's easier for me to compare my state of wakefulness to myself 15 years ago or 20 years ago. Uh, There's been some improvement. <laughs> There's been improvement in a couple of ways. And maybe not in the most obvious ways. Um, one big area of change is that the intensity or the power of thoughts seem to have gotten much less. So independent of the frequency of how often one is lost, it's like the quality of them, it's not, they come through in a much lighter way. So it doesn't feel like the thoughts are so compelling or so driving. So there's and again, it's not, it's not that compelling thoughts never come, but less, it's much less frequently. And so there's just that basic, much greater sense of uh, ease, mm-hmm. even as thoughts do come, and I get caught up in them, but it's, all, it's a lot lighter. So that's, that's one, one dimension of it. Another dimension, which 
is has been a tremendous blessing. And it refers back to your comment about all the judging, mind for being asleep for a very long time, and I think that's a common pattern. I would judge myself a lot, not only that, but for seeing all the different kind of defilements in my mind. And either when I would see them myself or my teachers would point them out, I'd get really upset, you know, and I would either have that sense of hopelessness or uh, just self-judgment about being a bad person. Something happened along the way, and incredibly grateful where I really got to welcome the seeing of that and appreciate seeing the defilements because I'd rather see them than not see them. You know, and that was like just this amazing turning point. And so now when I have a real juicy defilement coming up, <laughs> mostly I mean, sometimes I'm really caught in it, but more often I get really interested. You know, it's like, what is happening here? And I'm so interested and grateful to be seeing it rather than simply being carried away by it. And it really becomes a tremendous, um, tremendous place of practice from interest. You know, investing. So that's a big change. There's a lot less self-judgment about seeing the defilements as they come up. So that, that's created a lot of ease. Um, the third, I don't know if all of this is really what you're asking about, but uh, the third development that's happened over the years, which I also appreciate a lot in the practice and the fruits of the practice, is that the basic level of mindfulness and concentration, I've seen over the years uh, deepen. So, so it, it reminds me to the image of you know in the ski reports where you get the report on the mountains of uh, the base, how, how deep the base is. You know, in the bad year it's really low and the rocks are poking out. But then when there's a lot of snow, you know, and the base builds up. Well, what happens in practice is that the base of concentration and mindfulness build up so that each time you sit, you're not bouncing over the rocks, you know, and struggling with what's going on. That over time, the level, the, the base level that we're operating from, I don't know the right word, is stronger or deeper or, you know. And so that gives a lot of encouragement in the practice. And that really, I found, it really came from regularity of practice, both daily practice, but also regularity of retreat <coughs> practice. You know, it just kept doing it at it, whatever rhythm, you know, whether it's a 10-day course a year or two 10-day courses or a month or you know, three months, whatever it is, but really doing it regularly, it, it built. Yeah, and so that's another way uh, that things have changed a lot. So, yeah. Back to the, um, to the shopping mall. <laughs> if one were a truly awake person and one were going through that shopping mall, <coughs> it seems like that person would come to hold 
very different things. Because on the one hand, you were really completely editing present in a way. But at the same time, you, you're there for a purpose. You have to navigate your way to the shopping mall. And then you're being distracted at seeing things in the window. So if you were truly awake and open person, what would you, how would you be going through that? I think it would be the difference, and I think you could uh, feel the difference energetically. So instead of being pulled like that, so there's the, there's the energetic contraction and then toppling forward into the next store, the next step even, it's more the sense of being settled back and receiving. You know, so it's a more receptive mode rather than a, a wanting mode. And so you're just open. You're open to the sights and the sounds and you know what you need to do and you do it. But you're settled back in the body, in the energy field, rather than that, that toppling. And the difference between those two is so noticeable. Uh, so I, I think it's very possible to be in that shopping mall from a place of freedom, in a place of freedom. Not, maybe if we were really in a place of freedom, we wouldn't find ourselves there that often. <laughs> but one could be. You know, and even in our relative place, or, or dance between ignorance and awareness, I think it is a good place to watch. You know, how are we in that situation? Because it's so noticeable. This is from the question, the exact same question I had. Is the goal of the practice to be mindful in every moment? I once heard Shin Ben Young say, I'm not a mindfulness robot. And he said that after I had spent a <laughs> <laughs> whole bunch of time uh, making uh, gone, random gone cakes and giving them out to people here. And I had one go off every two and a half minutes in my workspace, and I realized I'd already gone somewhere when this thing went off two and a half minutes later. And I was. Uh, had a very low opinion of myself after two weeks of doing that. Mm -hmm. Did it help? Did oh, absolutely. I, well, I would take I would take the discipline to to go to check into talk image and feel every every time the drum would go mm -hmm. off. Mm -hmm. But it showed me how far I had gone away in mm -hmm. two and a half minutes, all day, every day, yeah. on the walking court, basically. Mm -hmm. But then after I had gone through this and felt bad, he said, "Well, I'm, I'm not a mindfulness robot. I, I'm, I'm interested in his question exactly. How how many moments? If there's a thousand moments in a day." How many moments are you completely aware of talking to steel, you're there and only filed? Well, I haven't counted, so... Or, and is the goal to be that way every moment, or is that just ridiculous? I think there are two questions contained in that. One is, what's the goal? And the second is, how are you achieving it? because I think the goal is to be awake you know, and undistracted because distraction in that sense is a moment of ignorance it's a moment of delusion and I, the Buddha the Buddha means awake the awakened one you know and I think that that is that is the state uh, in Dzogchen they call the natural great perfection where that, that awareness is stabilized. Uh, of course, I can't 
speak for Chinzun, so I don't, don't know what he meant in that moment. But as he was saying it, what came to my mind was he may have been pointing out a certain quality of efforting, you know, to to achieve it, and a kind of certain tightening with you're walking on eggshells to be mindful, you know, and. So then it's a question not of goal, but of method or of way of practice and really learning the balance of ease in, in the development of the awareness. So you're not, yeah, I'm going to be mindful if it killed me, you know, which is not, that's not the goal and it's really not the way. Do you follow? Uh, I mean, you can see it sometimes on retreat for, uh, like with newer yogis, you know, as, as I watch them, you know, move about, you can kind of see this quality of straining to be mindful. And so it's, but it's, it's true of anything, you know, we're learning to ski or play music or whatever. In the beginning of a discipline, there's always more effort that we make than is really needed. But we need to go through that period in order to learn the, learn the skill, and then it relaxes into a much more effortless mode. Uh, and that very much happens in practice. I'm also wondering how to, how, how to be mindful in, in a day when a lot of us make our living thinking. Uh, I make my living just sitting there and writing. Mm-hmm. And that, I found, is a different place. Yeah, it is a different place. So I felt like, oh, I'm going to leave this thinking place where I earn my living and go back and be mindful. Mm-hmm. But it felt like a, a bifurcated existence. Yeah. Munindra had a, integrated. my first teacher, he had a great image for that because it's true. When we use our conceptual mind, as a lot of us do, it's a different level. We are, we are entering that world of concepts. He said, uh, he distinguished between two kinds of mindfulness, this kind of momentary you know, where we're really there in each moment, noticing things. He distinguished that kind of mindfulness from what he called a general mindfulness, where, for example, in reading or in writing, or we are, we are really just concentrating on what we're doing, but there's enough general mindfulness present to become aware if unwholesome mind states arise. Right. So we're going along, and if all of a sudden the mind gets whatever, angry or reactive or judgmental or whatever, yeah. the mind picks that up. And that that's served, that's, that's sufficient in those activities. Because otherwise, if you, if you were really doing this moment-to-moment mindfulness and reading a book, <laughs> you could, I mean, you would just start seeing black and white, you know. <laughs> but you need the conceptual engagement. Uh, but it really is watching, you know, having enough awareness so that we know the quality of our mind. Yeah. Um, that's what Dan is bringing up plagues me as well. And it seems to me that if I, if I really have the mindfulness skills, like learning the scales and the mechanical arpeggios or whatever, I don't have to think about the skills in mm-hmm. 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 And um, there must be an ability somehow to carry two levels of consciousness simultaneously. 
the one that is involved in the reading functions and activities, mm. and the one that is simply not attached to those functions, and simply observing them as um, an activity without judgment, without mm. delusion on it. And how, for uh, me, it's the, the trouble is to be able to do both rather than the black or the white or the either or the or. Well, let me know the fruit of your experiment. <laughs> it's not how I, it, it hasn't been my experience, but I'm not saying that it's not possible. So, I mean, my experience is more in the way that Muninja described it where when I'm engaged in the conceptual mind, I'm really in it, and I'm not watching myself do it. Well, I, I, I wonder, for example, I know some people who can read a book and knit at the same time. But it's completely disparate functions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they seem to be able to knit complicated patterns and read complicated material. And then they're just, you know, just skinning or on one or skimming on the other. Mm-hmm. And, and the simultaneously functions that way. Mm-hmm. It blows my mind. Can, you know. No, well, I think that that seems somewhat different than what he was saying. What? I would agree with you that the meeting is a mechanical thing and it's not requiring a very high level of concentration in the mind. Mm-hmm. Especially they are all very practice and speed Mm-hmm. And in terms of keeping both levels of the mind together, I guess it's all a question of relativity, you know. I mean, that's why there are genres and things like that, you know, because people who want to go deep in a certain kind of mind, they have to put themselves outside of uh, their own functioning. Mm-hmm. Even the Buddha mm-hmm. has to go up in the forest and sit mm-hmm. on their retreat. To the shopping center. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But then once he was enlightened, he probably was at that place, even though when he was going around the street. Well, that's that's the question that I have. Because the enlightenment itself can be its own function, in a sense. It it isn't something that we bring to the situation. It exists. Like you said, nature Mm -hmm. of mind is Mm -hmm. already Mm -hmm. that state. Mm -hmm. So can I have... I mean, is, am I completely not even conceptually considering the possibility of, of of being in that emptiness while I am, you know, uh, no, I think aware that of the emptiness while I am functioning in the better state? I think that you're adding, and I, I'm saying this tentatively, so this is just. I think that you're adding a piece of, when you said aware of emptiness, that, so it, that almost sounded like a, a self-reflective awareness of things. And that seems different to me than an enlightened being 
empty of self doing all of these activities the activities are done empty of self but there may not be that self-reflection on the emptiness at that time it's just there's no one there you know, and so to try to keep that self-reflection going I think there's a, this is an interesting place of exploration, okay? uh, and in a way it has to do with the creative process, like you know, great musicians or artists or writers or whatever, when they're really in what they're doing, what is that state? My sense is, and again, this need to need to explore further. There's a distinction between concentration and wisdom. And so I could imagine a place of being very concentrated, one-pointed in what one is doing. And out of the power of that concentration, it really suppresses, and this is, this is the function of concentration, it suppresses the notion of self, it suppresses the hindrances, because one is just absorbed in that. I think that that doesn't necessarily imply the wisdom mind of understanding emptiness or experiencing emptiness. You know, so it's kind of just at different levels. And, and which is why, and this is true both in the Buddhist tradition of concentration development as well as in the more secular applications, that when pe- people come out of the concentrated state, the same old stuff is there. You know, whereas when people have really are coming from the wisdom place of emptiness, to the degree that it's realized, it's not coming in and out of. That concentration, let's just take it in a meditative way. But, uh, when you go into a, a state of concentration in meditation, the hindrances are all suppressed. You know, so there's no desire and there's no aversion. But you come out of the concentration and they're all back and they're functioning in the same old way. For somebody who will say is at some stage of enlightenment, as, as just a an example of, of the wisdom mind, they have uprooted certain defilements, so they're not arising, and it's not a, it's not a temporary suppression of them. And so whatever one is doing, it's doing from that place of 
freedom, however, however much the freedom, you know, to whatever extent. And I'm, I'm thinking it's the same. I could imagine it's the same thing with a creator, an artist, or a creative person. In the state, there's a purity that comes from that concentration and one-pointedness. But then you come out of it, and of course, we know from the lives of so many great artists, <laughs> you know, the lives are really screwed up because out of that space, all the defilements are still there. What I'd like to suggest now, maybe before lunch, is is one o'clock usual lunchtime, uh, to have some time for walking, to kind of get out of the conceptual mode. Uh, you're all familiar with the walking practice? Mm -hmm. uh, what I would suggest as you do it are two, uh, a couple of things. At whatever speed you walk, and you can, you know, in the half hour, 35 minutes uh, experiment and walk at different speeds, really drop into the body with the sense of feeling the sensations of the movement rather than the sense of being up here, even metaphorically watching the movement. It's feeling it from the inside. It's not observing it from the outside. Okay, so that's, that's really an important step. So it's very relaxed at whatever speed you're going. It's very relaxed you're in your body. There's a sense of being in the body, simply feeling the sensations of the movement. This is the end of this tape. Please proceed to the next tape. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.